Go anywhere in the world and you will find a dumpling. And that is loosely defined as a sweet or savory morsel encased in dough and then steamed, fried, or baked. You're probably imagining your favorite dumpling right now. But does that picture change when we talk about dumplings from Europe or Asian cuisines? As We Eat is embarking on a three-part series exploring dumplings. And this is part two of Dumplings from Europe. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hey, Kim, how are you? I'm doing well. We've got a little bit of a forest fire smoke hellscape going on up here in the Pacific Northwest. So I walk outside and I can taste the wood smoke and smell it and you feel it in the back of your throat. It's not so bad that, you know, I'm having trouble breathing or anything, but I guess I'm feeling like fall is rapidly approaching. And so the those smells are starting to remind me of the fall winter coming weather on all that jazz. How are you? Good, really good. We also have fires around us. We had really thought that we'd escaped the fire season, mm. but not so. We can barely even see the mountains. Oh That's my gosh. how smoky it is wow. here. It's really crazy. Same thing, itchy eyes and sore throats, and it's really sad, the oh. amount of forests that are burning up right now. Yeah, I really, I don't mean to make light of it at all, because this is always very devastating for our part of the country, our part of the world. We need some rain, and we need people to behave well and not throw cigarettes out the window. I always hate hearing when a major devastating forest fire is started by something that is just careless. Exactly. Yeah. But let's talk about dumplings. Oh, let's. Those are tasty, fun things to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so in our first installment of the dumpling series, we talked about Asian dumplings. And today we're going to venture into European dumplings. As Alan Davidson states in the Oxford Companion to Food, quote, in Europe, it would be fair to say that dumplings are almost ubiquitous with that continent, explaining that there are three main regions where they flourish, England, Central Europe, and Italy. So today we thought we would take you all on a dumpling adventure that includes pierogies, raviolis, both French and Italian, matzo balls, kreplock, and floaters. Kim, why don't you start us out with raviolis? Oh, yes, please. So one of the things that I learned this year and I tried to share with our friends at home is how noodles and pasta are different from each other, even though we tend to use these terms interchangeably. And both start with dough. And if you've missed our dough episode, it's OK. We'll wait, rewind, go back, check it out. Both start with dough. But noodles are typically extruded through some sort of press and then used fresh or dried. And pasta is typically rolled out into sheets, cut into its desired shapes and used fresh, although you can like refrigerate fresh. Ravioli is possibly the best example that I can muster for a pasta dumpling. Ravioli, or little turnips in Italian dialect, came into our culinary consciousness via Italy, where a mid-14th century manuscript, Libro per Cucco, from Venice, describes a ravioli composed of egg, fresh cheese, 
minced green herbs simmered in broth along with sweet and strong spices. But a similar dish called raiolis appeared in a 14th century Anglo-Norman manuscript that we fondly know of as the form of curry. One thing I really want to note here is that the ravioli dish also very likely pre-existed these manuscripts. And I believe that we're going to have to explore how the growth of literacy in reading and writing has affected culinary history and studies because now all of a sudden we're documenting these recipes, these ways of eating, these forms, these traditions. It's not that they didn't exist until that moment. It's that this is the moment of documentation. And the fact that we could document and share manuscripts describing ways of preparing these foods then also helped food move around the world as people moved around the world. So in a way, the cookbook, as we kind of know it today, changed our lives in a much broader way than I think we really give it credit for. So Mm -hmm. let's put a pin in this one. We're going to have to come back to this. But if we consider the classic form of ravioli, and I'm thinking a square of pasta with a delicious, tasty morsel in the center, if this is to be our master example of a type of dumpling, then really we could fill an entire plate and more with dumplings from Malta, Cyprus, Turkey, France, and India that each bear no small resemblance to our prototype ravioli, except perhaps for the sauce or broth in which it's served. So I want to talk about raviolis from the south of France, because I had never heard about this so far. I love exploring and learning new things. So in the south of France, particularly the historical region of Dauphin, you may find a dish called ravioles du Dauphin, also known as ravioles du Roman. And this is composed of two layers of pasta dough made out of wheat flour, eggs and water, and that is surrounding a filling of Comte or French Emmental cheese. Mm. The Raviole du Dauphin appellation has been legally protected since 1989, and the dish received Le Belle Rouge designation in 1998. That means any eggs or cream cheese used in the dish must be sourced from this particular region, but the dish cannot be designated as an appellation d'origine contrôlée, like we see with Champagne, the AOC designation, because this dish makes use of ingredients which originate outside the Dauphin region. I love the French. I love the way that they do this to their dishes and their foods. We want to protect it and make it special, but it can't be too special because it's not from here. But we anyway, love the French. This dish can be served either poached or grilled and served in a meat broth or as an au gratin dish, which, to be clear, is effectively cheese ravioli baked in cheese sauce and topped with a little bit more cheese. I could only find versions for the recipe for Gratin de Raviole de Romaine in French, but I'm going to do my best to translate something into English for the show notes. So if you feel really compelled to have this Raviole de Romaine au gratin and enjoy all the cheese, I'm going to do my best to hook you up. If you decide to try it, I just want to mention that it's well known that the French control their cholesterol levels with a steady diet of good red wine. So be prepared to (laughs) ameliorate the cheese, but go for something good. No two-buck chuck for this one. Treat yourself. Now let's talk for a minute about Cypriot ravioles, which likely date to a time when Cyprus was a Venetian colony. So we're seeing that Italian influence. And these ravioles take a traditional form of a ravioli, but have a flavor that is truly unique to Cyprus. First, the dough is formed from flour, olive oil, salt, and water, and then filled with a mixture of fresh and aged 
halloumi cheese, and Cypriot dried mint. The ravioli are poached in chicken stock and served with lemon, freshly grated halloumi cheese. And I've heard that these are really popular for Tirini Sunday or Cheese Fair Sunday. And that is the last Sunday before Lent. And if you feel like you would love to have a refresher on Lent, you can go back and listen to our Lent episode and find out why everyone wants to eat all the cheese and the dairy before Lent. We should maybe just have Cheese Fair Sunday anyway. Every Sunday? Why not? Fish on Fridays, cheese on Sundays. Makes sense to me. So from here, I'd like to fly us over to Poland for a dish of pierogies, or alternatively called Veroneki for our Ukrainian friends, we salute you. Pierogi specifically refers to the boiled version of a dumpling, and it's the actual plural form of pierog. That word itself has Slavic language origins, meaning pie or small pie. Pierogi are dumplings made from unleavened dough surrounding a savory or sweet filling that are then boiled in water and sometimes also pan fried before serving. When I went to Poland during my college study abroad program in 1998, I lived off of plates of potato pierogi pan fried with onions and bacon. This version of pierogies is basically akin to peasant food. We talked about the introduction of the potato into Europe and how people were actually really suspicious of it at first, but royalty kept pushing for these potatoes to be planted because they were considered inexpensive yet nutritious. But it took a while for the potato to catch on. But by the 17th century, all socioeconomic classes in Poland were eating pierogies as a staple of the Polish diet. And now to this day, we kind of identify pierogies as being a dish of major Polish origin. Now, in reality, there are several formulations of pierogi made with increasing quality of ingredients or with specific holidays in mind. What I found was that Poles traditionally serve two types of pierogi for Christmas Eve, one filled with sauerkraut and dried mushrooms and the other filled only with dried mushrooms and served in a clear borscht broth. So if I have any Polish friends listening, I really need you to invite me over for Christmas Eve because this sounds like a really amazing tradition that I would love to experience. Now, the exact origin of pierogi is not known, but they bear a really strong resemblance to Chinese dumplings in construction and content. And so it is widely speculated that the food came to Europe via Marco Polo's Silk Road, which was a network of trade routes connecting East and Southeast Asia, the Indian subcontinent, Central Asia, the Middle East, East Africa, and Europe. And these trade routes were really particularly active from the 2nd century BCE until about the mid-15th century. A more romantic version of the Polish pierog is that St. Hyacinth of Poland, a Dominican priest and missionary, brought the idea for a ravioli-like dumpling with him upon his return to Poland from Rome. And his relationship to pierogi is attested to in this really interesting story. So I'm going to attempt some Polish here. I'm going to apologize. I deeply respect the Polish language and the Polish people, but this is not my native language. Sveti Jaku z pierogami, or in English, St. Hyacinth and his pierogi. This is a Polish exclamation akin perhaps to us saying something like good grief or holy smokes. And it comes from this miraculous legend that in 1238, when a hailstorm destroyed the crops of Kosielek, leaving people on the verge of famine, a visiting St. Hyacinth, not yet a saint, told them to pray. The next day, the crops were miraculously restored and people made pierogi from those crops as a token of gratitude, thus cementing the relationship between St. Hyacinth and the pierogi. 
Dumplings that resemble pierogi are found all over Central and Eastern Europe, including the Ukraine, as I've said earlier, Eastern Germany, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, and Mennonite Russia. And that is another little interesting bit of history. Russian Mennonites developed a very particular food culture, and their varenki is commonly filled with cottage cheese, served in cream gravy, or stuffed with tart cane fruits like blueberries, served alongside farm sausage or ham. However, due to mass immigration, Mennonite-style Veroniki are no longer common in Poland, Russia, or the Ukraine, but is now very common to be found in the Canadian prairies, Chihuahua, Mexico, Paraguay, Bolivia, and other places where Russian Mennonites settled. Here's this complete transportation of this food tradition from one culture to other corners of the earth. And yet, wow, from its place of origin, it's not extinct. It's just not common anymore. So a little bit more to go on pierogies because I, I found this fascinating. Pierogies also obviously brought to the United States and Canada by Central and Eastern European immigrants, particularly to areas with large Polish or Ukrainian populations such as Pittsburgh, Chicago, New York City. First, an at-home food, pierogi made their way to restaurants via the Martin House Tavern in Cleveland in about 1928. But by the 1960s, pierogi were a common frozen supermarket staple. Now, go to a Pittsburgh Pirates ball game and you'll be treated to a spectacle of the great pierogi race between innings featuring six contestants racing in giant pierogi costumes. Potato Pete, Jalapeno Hannah, Cheese Chester, Sauerkraut Saul, Oliver Onion, Bacon Burt, and Pizza Penny. The tradition has been running, pun fully intended, since 1999 <laughs> and features not only competition between the pierogies, but also rivalries with the Milwaukee Brewers racing sausages and the Washington Nationals racing presidents. There will definitely be a follow-up article on this because there is some amazing behind-the-scene drama involving comments taken out of context on social media, a pierogi breaking their foot during a race, and a flying TKO tackle of President Roosevelt by either one <laughs> or two pierogies. I And there's a video. You're going to see the video. You just have to be patient with me. I got to pull all this together for the As We Eat Journal. I really feel like we're missing some of these things out here on the West Coast. I don't. Right. I have racing racing pierogies alone, and not only that, but a total knockout tackle of a president by a pierogi. I we just I went to a ball game and all I got was a sausage sandwich. <laughs> missing out over here. Anyway, that's why I learned about pierogies and ravioli. And man, I love both these dishes to the ends of the earth. But you're going to tell me about some other tasty treats as well. Yeah, I have a couple of things that I wanted to talk about. In episode 17, we discussed the symbolism of matzah bread to the celebration of Passover. And one of the iconic Passover dishes made from matzah is matzah balls. And interestingly, it was the industrialization of matzah bread that really propelled the popularity of matzah balls into the Jewish cuisine. Now, matzah bread was traditionally made by hand, and matzah balls were created to utilize any of the leftover crumbs from the bread. And just a quick matzah bread history. When the Jewish people were fleeing Egypt, 
they didn't have enough time to allow the bread dough that they had made to rise. So they just quickly threw it in the oven and got the heck out of Dodge. And what resulted was this really flat cracker-like bread, which is called matzah. Now, there are a couple of theories as to where the name came from. One theory is that it comes from the root word, which means to hasten. The second is that it means juiceless or dry due to its texture. Either way, this bread became a symbol of deliverance of the Jews out of the hands of evil and into the promised land. Now, as I said, matzah balls really came into fashion when Manischewitz started to produce matzah bread commercially. Prior to that, they were made to use up extra crumbs from matzah bread that was made at home. Once they became commercially available, you could just buy a box of matzah meal and make matzah balls to your heart's content. Now, Manischewitz even developed a matzah ball recipe for their 1930 cookbook called Tempting Kosher Dishes Cookbook, and these matzo balls were called Feather Balls Alsatian Style. And I'm sure it was just to communicate to the Jewish homemakers that by using this matzah, the resulting dumplings would be less dense than those made with homemade matzah. Matzo balls, as we're talking about dumplings, are made by combining matzo meal, onion, seasonings, some type of fat, generally chicken or schmaltz, and eggs. The paste is rolled into balls, which care should be taken to make very light, according to the Jewish manual edited by Lady Judith Montefiore. These are then put into chicken stock and simmered for about 30 to 40 minutes until al dente. Now, much like the pierogi and raviolis, Jewish kreplach is a filled egg dough, and much like the matzo balls, are infused with symbolism. Much like many of the dumplings that we've talked about so far, there's so much symbolism around them. There is speculation that the kreplach originated in China. Think wonton and wonton soup. Much like wonton soup, kreplach is made with a rolled dough that's stuffed with a meat filling. The resulting dumplings are served in a stock, either beef or chicken or vegetable. And like so many of the other dumplings that we've discussed so far, they're pretty labor intensive. So often they're reserved for special occasions like Yom Kippur, Purim, and Simkat Torah. I love this. The meat filling symbolizes inflexible justice and the dough suggests compassion. So these dumplings are actually a metaphor for God's exacting justice being tempered with his mercy. Man, Jewish food is so cool. It's so amazing. Every time we talk about it, I learn something and I just love learning about this. Yeah. Yeah. So kreplach can be made with a chicken filling, a beef filling, or a cheese filling. The egg dough is rolled out. It's cut into squares, much like our raviolis and our pierogies. The filling is placed on one half of the dough, and then it's folded into a triangle, boiled in soup stock or boiling water. I had mentioned that they are often served at Purim, and that goes back to that three-sided hat that we talked about for Purim, which is very significant in the cookies that are made for Purim. Right. So the last dumpling that I want to talk about is the floater. And this English dumpling accompanied broths, stews, and soups. Originally, these dumplings were made with flour, water, and salt to help extend the broth, soup, or stew that they were added to. Now, over time, ingredients were added, herbs, leaveners, which made them lighter, leftover bread. Often they were made with suet, so they were called suet dumplings. 
And in the 19th century, there was even a formalized etiquette to serving and eating these dumplings. In Elizabeth Gaskell's Cranford, published in 1853, there's a famous scene where Mr. Holbrook recites his father's rule of, quote, no broth, no ball, no ball, no beef, which alluded to the strict order that the dish was to be served. First the broth, then the dumpling, then the beef. And this formality of eating definitely depicted the moral codes of the Victorian era, but it also speaks to the fact that beef was a luxury, and as such, it was really important to fill the person up before placing a small, thin slice of beef upon the plate. These dumplings are really utilitarian. They're not frilly like hinkali, a Georgian dumpling that has as many as 19 pleats. And they're not filled with broth like the Shaolong Bao. And there's really nothing very symbolic about them. There is, however, a nostalgia that surrounds them. These are the dumplings that grandmothers made. Not pretty, not even gram worthy, but they're comfort food at its finest. Mm. Wow, that is so cool. So as a final note on our European dumplings episode, I have a travel destination for us all to try out. And that is to see the world's largest pierogi in Alberta, Canada. And this is a 27-foot dumpling weighing 6,000 pounds standing in the middle of a community park with a mammoth fork bisecting it. And I'm quoting from Gastro Obscura, a food adventurer's guide by Atlas Obscura. The giant pierogi, as it is known, is one of the giants of the prairies, a collection of massive sculptures scattered across western Canada that includes the giant potato in Valhall and the world's largest mushroom in Vilna. And this is from 1991. The sculpture is Glendon, the small village of Glendon's tribute to the Eastern European dumpling, one of the most popular imported foods in Canada. Wow, that's really fascinating. Yeah. We're not far oh, from really? that little oh, town. Yeah, you're mm -hmm. going to have to go and take a picture for me of the giant dumpling. But the funny side note about the fork is that they added it in after the original design because people would drive by and thought that it looked like a cow pie. And so the fork <laughs> was added so that people would know that, no, it is not a cow pie. It is indeed the pierogi. That's, that is funny. Yeah, I thought that was hysterical. <laughs> and it reminds me, actually, it reminded me of the, the concrete field of corn in Dublin, Ohio. We're going to have to do a tour yeah. someday of all the great food sculpture yeah. of North America. Heck, why not the whole globe? Oh, that would be we'll fun. We'll start in North America. Yeah. We talked about a couple of our episodes today. What did we talk about? We actually talked about episode 17, which was our Passover episode. So if you want to learn a little bit more about matzah and Passover, we invite you to listen or re-listen to that episode. And if you haven't listened to episode 48, our first installment of Dumplings, you're in for a pan-Asian treat. And you had mentioned a couple of other episodes as well. So my recommendations are to check out episode 12 on Mardi Gras, where we talk in depth actually about Lenten foods. And I'm also thinking that our listeners might enjoy rediscovering one of my favorite episodes, episode 15 on potatoes. We went really deep into the history of potatoes. Frankly, these little nuggets traveled all the way around the world in order to make us French fries, and they deserved their own episode. And we had such a blast getting that information together. Yeah, yeah. we did. And finally, I'd like to invite you to Come back to the beginning with us and listen to episode three on comfort food, where we get really in depth into what it is, 
what it means to us, and why we love eating it so much. We would like to thank Jane Bonacci again for suggesting the topic of dumplings, and we'll see you in two weeks when we wrap up our dumpling series with American dumplings. Mm -hmm. Can't wait for that one. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. We'd love to hear about your favorite dumpling. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you could spare a couple of minutes away from your dumpling eating to rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser or Spotify, we would really appreciate it. This really helps those crazy content robots know that you enjoy the show and hopefully they'll do their little robot thing and recommend it to other food enthusiasts. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. We would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, discoveries, explorations, and travel stops. There are several subscription tiers, and we're sure you're going to find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a little bit of research and a dash of humor. And some racing pierogies. And some racing pierogies. Mm-hmm.